0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you as usual from Athen Rye, courtesy of Immaculata Productions, for the latest in our sequence of podcasts uh, entitled The Brendan Option, an exploration in faith and Catholic thinking in our present fluid situation. I began with just a line there of, of the old Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath, which was not exactly a hymn. It's often called a hymn, but in fact it was what's called a sequence. It was sung before the Gospel in the old Tridentine Mass. Now, it doesn't go back to the beginning of the church, although the theology of it does. The theology of it is probably taken, and to an extent the literary expression, probably taken from chapter 1 of the book of Zephaniah. But there would be other scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament inspirations for it. Even the author is not clear, hidden in the mists of history. But the most favoured candidate is Tommaso di Celano. Thomas of Celano, a friend of Francis of Assisi and and a member of his order a very gifted man, and Thomas is generally credited with writing this hymn, although it's sometimes ascribed to others as well. It was sung in the Old Mass at Requiem Masses, and it was sung, as I said before, the Gospel, it was a Requiem High Mass. You know, they used to have a high mass, but you you, you had to pay more. Okay, you had to pay more for a high mass. High money, high mass, low money, low mass, no money, no mass. It only took one priest to say low mass, but a high mass took a few priests. You had to have a priest and then a deacon and subdeacon and so on. Master of Ceremonies. So the Dies was sung during that mass. It's really quite a frightening hymn. And there are many, many rehearsals of it, many performances of it in different musical pieces. Uh, for instance, anyone who's written a mass before the 1960s has almost certainly written a Dies So you have uh, Mozart would be an example of that, for instance. If you want to see um, a Diazire performed with all of its ominous drama, you could maybe take a look at Ingmar Bergman's famous film The Seventh Seal, an apocalyptic film dealing with issues of life and death with what, what are called eschatology, from the Greek eschaton, the last thing, dealing with eschatology during the Great Plague, during the bubonic plague in the late Middle Ages in Sweden. I think Sweden. Scandinavian country. Probably Sweden. Bergmar was uh, was Swedish. Son of a clergyman, actually, although I think he himself was an atheist. And uh, the film really is is an intrusion of secular thought into the Middle Ages, which is an age of faith, because the characters in it don't really have much hope and the film exudes no hope. Although it does give some indication of the possibility of continuing, but certainly not in a hopeful way after death. The DA's is the Day of Wrath. And the first line that I quoted goes, Diesire diesilla, solve in infavilla, teste David cum sibilla. You hear the rhyming? Three lines in each verse, and they're about oh, 19 or 20 verses, depending on which version you use. Okay, the church added bits and pieces over the, over the centuries. But it's basically a 13th century hymn, Day of Wrath, that day. And that phrase again comes up in The Seventh Seal in Bergmar's film. Where death speaks about it, that day, when the day comes. Solvet seclum infe teste David cum sibilla, The age will dissolve into ash, as David testifies, and the Sibyl. Okay, so it's, e- it's even referring to, to the classical pagan prophets and to King David. Teste David cum sibilla. This sense that things, that the end times are here, comes regularly in history. You had quite a bit of it around the time of the, the last jubilee, the year 2000, or just before the year 2000. In any case, that was the hymn. It was a hymn about death. It was a hymn about the immediacy of death, about the unpredictability of death, as Archbishop Joseph Cassidy, a former Archbishop of Chum, the late Joseph Cassidy, a very gifted man, as he used to say, inconsiderate death. Blows where it listed, like the Holy Spirit. It just comes where it wants. And in the film, The Knight, played by the fantastic actor, I think he's still alive, Max von Sydow. You, Woody Allen uses him quite a bit. The Knight bargains with death for a little extra life. And he plays a game of chess. And the, this game of chess is like a backbone to the film. He's playing for his life against death. The Knight comments to death, most people don't think about you. Most people don't think about death until that day. And, and death goes, ah, that day, Diezilla that day. And I can tell you from my own experience is that most of us don't think about death much. And we're astounded when we have a near-death experience as I did two years ago where I had a serious stroke. Now, for me, I had hours. You know, I had hours to think about it and to make my peace. But some people don't get any time at all. For some people, it's an hour or minutes or even seconds. I can think of one young man I used to know who got, they reckon, about one or two seconds during which he knew something was happening. So it can come so quickly. And where are all your plans? Where are all your grand designs? Where are all your worries, your neurotic suspicion of the motives of others, your maybe a right suspicion of the motives of others? Where does all that go? It all turns to ash, it turns to nothing. The age, solvet seclum in the age will dissolve into ashes. And that's talking about the end times and the apocalypse. But the apocalypse comes to all of us, a foretaste of the apocalypse, just as the good things in life are a foretaste of heaven. The suddenness that can often attend death is a foretaste of the apocalyptic suddenness that will come on us like a thief in the night, and the age will dissolve into ash. The whole world as you see it, because remember that the whole world as you see it is not the whole world. It's the whole world as you see it, which is rather different slice of the cake and a much smaller portion. The world as you see it, nevertheless, is the world as far as you're concerned, as best you can see it. And for you, that seems to be the world or as much of a purchase as you can get on it. And that will dissolve into ashes, all your plans, everything. Now, the the hymn sequence, it was taken out of the liturgy, right? It was taken out of the liturgy, like a lot, around the time of the council. And it was done for the best of motives. The much-criticised Archbishop Bunini explained that its theology was too negative. It was regarded as a particularly theologically haunted piece from the Middle Ages. It didn't emphasise the resurrection enough, uh, although it is hopeful. It's not hopeless. It's not despairing. But it has a sense of despair and terror and fear. My former Latin professor, the unforgettable and incomparable father Reggie Foster, who's still alive in America, is still teaching Latin in his nursing home. This was 30 years ago he taught me. I doubt if he remembers me, but I rem- everyone who was taught by him remembers him so well. Foster's dismissive description of the reason for chucking it out is that uh, it frightened the little kiddies. I don't know if we needed to be as worried about that as we were, but cause for fear may have been elsewhere. But there we go. It's gone now anyway. You rarely hear it except at the extraordinary form masses very occasionally. I just wonder whether this isn't a symptom of the broader fact that modern life can't face death. I've talked about this before. We narcotize ourselves against death. And the modern undertaking industry, we depute it, and I've, we've done it in my family, we depute it to help us not to face it. We think we're facing death, but we're doing our best to dodge a lot of its pain. And the pain is there and the pain is real and it doesn't really go away. Yeah, I read somewhere that the psychologist Carl Jung, I'd love to be pretentious enough to say I've read him, but I haven't I've read practically nothing, very little by him. But he said that which we suppress in our younger years comes back in our later life, knife in hand, to take its revenge. Comes creeping back. And just because we pretend death hasn't happened doesn't mean it hasn't happened. And it doesn't mean that we'll be able to pretend that forever or keep that pretense up to ourselves. Death is a catastrophe. The old Irish who used to get blind drunk and go fighting at funerals and playing obscene games, which worried the clergy senseless. The old Irish may have had more sense than we have with our middle-class, well-behaved wakes, with a soft murmur of conversation, perhaps some tasteful lift music playing in the background. Maybe going outside, howling your grief, drinking your head off and fighting with your family is probably a rational enough response to something that is absolutely catastrophic beyond description. Because remember, the person that we know is a physical person. We're physical beings. And that body is there now, utterly unresponsive. A mask, an impersonal mask, that seems to be looking through us and beyond us forever, replaces the pliable, uh, responsive features that were so familiar to us, that we knew and loved, or knew and hated, whatever, but at least we knew. And that mask of death that descends on familiar face is a warning to us. You know the old actors in the Greek theater used to wear masks. It's a theatrical warning to us. It's the last part we play in life. And we're forever wearing masks in life. But this mask is the last one we put on. And it leaves our relatives and those who love us and know us, even those who hate us, helpless, utterly helpless, because you've gone beyond them. Completely, Evelyn Ward, the English Catholic writer, he was a convert and he had an extremely sharp eye and an and an acerbic wit. He mercilessly lampooned the modern undertaking business as he saw it already developed in the twenties in America, which was always far ahead of Europe. And he noted the way in which death was being cosmeticized and the mourners narcotized, and indeed the dying narcotized. We think of hospices, for instance, as places of refuge and peace. But a hospice, they're wonderful places and they're run by wonderful people. A hospice is not a place of refuge and peace. A hospice is a place of intense living. A hospice is a place where people are literally liminal. They are on the edge of experience. They are facing the eternal. That is a terrible place. It has a terrible beauty. It's very dangerous that we try to turn this into just endless comfort and that we abandon the drama of life. And you can't grasp or understand the drama of life until you have contemplated the certain and unavoidable fact that it will end. Explicable in physical terms, scientific terms, inexplicable in every other way. It is incomprehensible to us that we should end. That's why I have sympathy with young people who who are always getting themselves killed in car accidents. They think they're immortal. But we are immortal. And we cannot believe that this crap is happening to us. What is this blank? How can this happen to me? This happens to other people, but not to me. In the Gospel today, we had the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. I'm I'm taking a D.A. approach there. Very negative. I don't want to be abolished by Archbishop Bugnini. In the Gospel today, we're taking a look at this famous parable of our Lord, which emphasises the immediacy of death. The bridegroom is coming. Half of these bridesmaids have no oil for their lamps. The other half have. Then the bridegroom arrives, a typical Jewish wedding at the time, and the bridesmaids go out to meet him and escort him into the wedding feast. And half of them have no oil and have therefore disgraced their host because it looks as if he can't afford it. And so they're not doing what they're there for. And the other half won't share with them. They have only enough for themselves. And what Christ is doing is asking, are you ready? Will you be ready when he comes? Will you be ready? And of course, for most of us, the answer is no. We won't be ready. I think in my own experience, as I mentioned it there again, and that soft, gentlemanly way in which death kind of stood at the front door of my house and bowed as he passed gave a careless wave, and this time didn't come in. This time, but he'll come back. And that time, that day, die zire, that day, he will come in and I will go with him. That is our lot. It is the unwritten law. It is of iron, it is of steel. I will go with him. I think of Emmeline Dickinson and the famous poem that every schoolboy and girl used to know. Because I could not stop for death, do you remember? Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves, and immortality. We slowly drove, he knew no haste, and I had put away my labour and my leisure too, for his civility. That's how it was with me. It was like a, a gentlemanly barman gradually turning off the lights to hint to his customers that he might go. Gentle, quiet, no pain, no drama. Things just started to shut down. I couldn't stop for him. I had things to do, I had no time for this nonsense. But he kindly stopped for me. And it can be much more sudden, as I said again, much more sudden. Will you be ready? Was I ready? No. Will you be ready? Quite likely, no, with great respect. And what does the Dies era go on to say? Liber scriptus proferetur, in quototum continetur, unde mundus judicetur. Now I'm I'm, I'm putting on my Bella Lugosi voice there, and if you're too young to know who Bella Lugosi was, he was a star famous for playing Dracula back in the oh, back in the day. Liber scriptus proferetur. The written book will be brought forth in quototum continetur, in which everything is contained. Unde mundus judicetur, from which the world will be judged. Mother of God, Lord looked down on us all, and that was what was sung at funerals. Magnificent. By crikey, the church took us seriously then, I'll tell you. I remember hearing of one holy priest who was being buried down in the south of the country. He was known for being holy and greatly revered and greatly loved. And at his funeral, one of his classmates, his friend, stood forward and he, he had just been praised to the height by the bishop in a sermon that was, you know, as is often the case, part eulogy. And the priest stood forward at the prayers of the faithful and said, we pray for Father Tom that his time in purgatory will be short. And the congregation were shocked. And they were thinking to themselves, well, if that's what Father Tom's going to get, What am I going to get? But that priest was totally right. We have no business saying about somebody who's very bad, oh, they're gone to hell. Who made you judge? Only God judges. You don't get to sit in that chair, nor I, nor the Pope himself. Nobody gets to sit in that chair and pass judgment on a soul. But more often we do the other. Oh sure, he's with the angels in heaven. You haven't a clue where he is. You back off. You don't judge a soul. We pray for souls. We don't judge souls. And the fact is that most of us, very likely, with all respect to the mercy of God, very likely will end up in purgatory. And I can tell you something else, I'm banking on it. I am banking on it. Because when the Liber Scriptus is brought forward, when the written book is brought out, and the columns are totted, I am going to be so in the red, it's going to be embarrassing. I reckon I'll fail the exams, but I might get the repeats by God's grace. Thank God for September. I am banking on purgatory. And what's purgatory? Purgatory is the state of purification. It is not a state of punishment. It's not punishment, but purification. And remember the souls in purgatory are assured of salvation. They are assured of salvation. That's absolutely crucial, but not yet. They must be prepared. They must be made ready for heaven. They have not turned against God and died in mortal sin, turned with their face away from Him, but they've committed many sins and they are not ready for God. And so they are purified. And we can pray for them. And they can pray for us and see us. Now, I can't emphasize that too strongly. Every time you pass a graveyard, pray for the holy souls. You should have great devotion to the Holy Souls. Pray for them and ask them to pray for you. That's absolutely crucial and it's a very serious duty for all Catholics. And a great charity, a great act of love. We've become afraid of talking about purgatory. You could empty the church if you start going on about purgatory now. You can't talk about hell at all. Which is basically like saying to somebody who's putting on a huge amount of weight that you're forbidden to talk to them about heart attacks. Even though we're all in danger of hell, you can't talk about hell at all or you'll upset people so much. But you can't talk about purgatory either. Only heaven. It's not that simple because we're not that simple. God loves us completely. We don't love him. Human beings, have a, we have a darkness in us. We're marbled through with an evil willfulness and an inclination to turn away from God. We're a hard, as a certain politician said about another politician, her husband, we're a hard dog to keep on the porch. That's for sure. Human beings are a hard dog to keep on the porch. I think we completely miss the drama of life. How suddenly it ends and how much is at stake. We have absolutely demonised Covid, understandably. But people die from flu every year. People die from cancer every year. People die from a whole load of things every year. People die. We didn't need COVID for people to die, and in considerable numbers. There's still no cure for cancer if it gets into, well, depending on what type it is, if it gets into the later stages. I mean, I remember as a history student reading about the Civil War, the ruthless way in which the government ended the Civil War or helped to end it. And we tend to forget the cost that was paid, the price that was paid for this state. And they started to take prisoners out and shoot them without trial in retaliation for the death of national soldiers, of Free State soldiers throughout the country. So there was an ambush and a soldier was killed. A prisoner would be visited in the Korra, maybe in the middle of the night, woken up from his sleep to see the governor and the chaplain and to be told that he had an hour and to, to ready himself, to prepare himself. And I was horrified by reading that. Imagine just being woken up and told you had an hour to live with no warning and no trial. Imagine that. And yet that's happening all the time in life. It's happening all the time in life. And who are you going to sue about that? Who's going to call you a survivor uh, out of that? Who's going to give you reparations? Who's going to give you compensation? You can whistle into the Winford, my friend. Because that's life. And those laws are of iron. We are worn out now trying to abolish tragedy. And because we can't, we pretend tragedy isn't there. So we dig up the ghosts of the past. And you have people like the British Prime Minister apologising for the famine. I can see what he was trying to do, but for God's sake, it is not undoable. It can't be undone. It's done. We have to stop this childish nonsense. It's heartbreakingly understandable. and it's, We want to play God. We want to unmake the past. We want to heal it. You can't heal the past. What's done is done. You can only heal the present and do something for the future. The past, liber scriptus, The written book will be brought forth. The past is written. And so, I mean, fine if you want to become obsessed with COVID, it's important to be aware of it and to be careful. There are people dying from other things, maybe in greater numbers now, because people are afraid to go into hospital. You remember in the rosary they used to pray in the not-so-old days, from a sudden and unprovided death, good Lord, deliver us. Well, here death comes, ready or not. What are you going to do about that? What am I going to do about that? The whole of Catholic spirituality is about, as they used to say, they used to use it as a verb, to ready the tea. To ready the tea was to make the tea. It's about readying yourself, fixing yourself up, getting yourself ready for that day. Diazilla. For that day. Now that's the first thing I'm going to say to you and it seems a grim message and it is a grim message. You should be afraid. So you can just sit there now and tremble for a while, do you? The world a good. Too much of it is not good. Too little of it, you'll turn into a fool who drinks a farm of land or gambles it away. Doesn't know the value of things and what the price that was paid for them. And none of us want you to be a fool. You're a brilliant and unique person. You can't be a fool. So do sit there and tremble for a minute. Do you good. Do us all good. We've all been there and we all need it. Be careful of the glamorous threats of COVID and war and this and that and the other, and the graveyards are being filled quietly, efficiently, from a whole load of allegedly everyday complaints and contingencies, accidents, you name it. Don't be taken in by the drama. Stalin once cynically observed he who had killed millions, that one man killed at a traffic lights was a national tragedy. Half a million was a statistic. But he had a point. Be very careful about that. And secondly, don't make a mistake that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, would have died laughing at you for. Don't have the hubris. That was their word for pride. Don't have the hubris to think you can abolish tragedy. You won't. Who are you? guy like you? You're going to abolish tragedy? That's God. Only God can do that. Christ has abolished tragedy. He has abolished tragedy in his life, death and resurrection. But we have to see this through. The kingdom is here, but not yet. You have that tension, that mystery at the heart of the faith. Tragedy has been abolished, yet tragedy is still here. We have to see the tragedy through to see the abolition expressed, consummated, and completed in the apocalypse, in the judgment, in the coming to eternal life. Please God. November, a grim time. A time of death, of cold, of leafless trees, of crows cawing in the leafless trees and so on and so forth. I hate the month of November. I mean, emotionally and, and, you know, just as a person. I I, I don't like it. I hate it, in fact. I hate November because it, it smells of death. A lot of people have lost their faith, but on all this pagan crap that you see them going on with. And there's no point trying to be a pagan if you're a modern Western European. You're going to call a religion that has shaped Europe for the last 2,000 years, you're going to call that old-fashioned and irrelevant, and go back to a religion of which nobody has exact memories, for which there's only the most limited evidence, and recreate that. What are you going to do, start sacrificing each other? Paganism. You hear a load of romantic nonsense about this. A whole load of rubbish goes on about November, but the church has turned this upside down. As Christ said, behold, I make all things new. The church strides into November in tears with a broken heart, mourning the dead, and yet believing in the future. And that future irradiates the present with hope. We have a future. If we have a future, we can endure anything. And in November, we go toward the future and we go toward the future with the prayers of those who have gone before us. Because here's the thing, and this is absolutely crucial. They are always with us. They're always with us. So the first thing I would say to you is, if you want to feel the full consolation of the church's teaching in this month of November and in the middle of your grief for whoever you've lost, and that grief may be quite recent, the first thing you must do is embrace death. You must embrace it. You must accept that we are frail and weak and that we don't, in mortal terms, last. We wear out. And that can happen very quickly. Now, if you dodge that, you go to a funeral and sometimes the person laid out in the coffin looks better than anyone around them. And of course, we pay the undertakers to do this. So people who are dead look as if they were sleeping, and look as if they were alive, and it makes us feel better. And then we we don't fill in the graves anymore during the rosary like we used to in Ireland. And that's when you knew somebody was dead. And of course it broke the family up, but it was cathartic in the Greek sense. It gave them a chance to work through the grief. Now, not to closure. I hate that rotten word closure. How do you get closure on somebody you truly love? That's a betrayal. You're a traitor if you get closure. You're not looking for closure. You wear the scars with pride and with dignity and you can bear them. If you're truly you're living your life as a Christian, you end up like those, those students in the German universities years ago who would wear a duelling scar on their face with pride to the end of their lives and would explain to you that which master had given them that scar, which fencing master had given it to them. That's how we are in life. That's the price of love. You're in a deer shop if you love. Cheapskates are better off not loving. No prices displayed, my friend you've come into a very expensive restaurant. And that love comes at a huge price and the scar will be deep, but it will heal. Your tears are honorable. Don't dodge them. Don't make this too middle class, too nicey-nicey. Don't dodge them. In death, a catastrophe has happened. Embrace that reality and stop pretending that somebody has just gone into the next room. Whoever goes on like that is a noggins. They really are being silly. You're not just going into the next room. It's a bloody disaster. That's what it is. And and the most rational response to it is to get blind drunk and start a fight with your brother, like a gentleman, instead of going around pretending that nothing has happened. And if you can embrace death, God will help you to transcend it. But he cannot help you to transcend that which you deny and pretend isn't there. The fear of death is totally rational and reasonable. It is honourable. Jesus himself wept helplessly at the grave of Lazarus. Jesus trembled and wept in Gethsemane. And I've never felt closer to him than I do at the grave of Lazarus and in Gethsemane. As Patty Kavanaugh called him, the coward Christ of Gethsemane. I've never felt closer to him. It's, it's wonderful how close you feel to him. That God has, this is an incredible condescension which transcends any offensive, as the French say, de haut en bas, you know, from the top to the bottom, a sort of the landlord lowering himself to the level of the tenant, which would infuriate an Irish person. It's not that kind of condescension, it's that absolute love. Jesus the shepherd hunting for us, calling for us, heartbrokenly, in the dark and in the hill country, looking for the lost sheep, calling for us. That's the condescension of God, is God searching for you. The hound of heaven, as uh, Francis Thompson, Victorian poet and drug addict, has he imagined him, the hound of heaven chasing you, chasing you, chasing you. That's the condescension. God hunts for you. God wants you to be with him. Now stop disrespecting what's happening. People go on and say, oh, you know, he's ready. He's resigned. I go way out of that. How do you resign yourself to this? How do you resign yourself to it? I'll tell you what you do. Maybe you stop thinking about it. Maybe you put on an act, save your own reputation, for all that's worth now, and to save the feelings of the people around you. Fair enough. I think it was said to Dr Johnson once that a particular criminal who had been hanged in Tyburn or Newgate or whatever it was, uh, shortly before, had shown tremendous courage and Johnson snorted. He said a man will do that, he said, just to look good one last time before his friends. He said it doesn't mean that he's really courageous before death. How do you get your head around death? I put it to you that only with faith, only with the help of God, can you get your head around death and therefore truly know how to live. I've mentioned to you before this, this writer, this American writer, Cormac McCarthy. I have great time for him. It's a screenplay he wrote, The Counselor. It's a screenplay he wrote. And I actually saw this film without knowing McCarthy had any involvement. And the minute I heard a few exchanges of conversation, I knew it was McCarthy. You can tell his style anywhere. And in his novel, he often has very poor people. Very, Yeats did the same thing. Very, very poor people, beggars or whatever, utter words of tremendous wisdom. But here in in this, it's a terrifying criminal, a drugs lord, the jefe. the boss in Spanish, who, who says this. The extinction of all reality is a concept that no resignation can encompass. And yet in that despair, which is transcendent, you will find the ancient understanding that the philosopher's stone will always be found despised and buried in the mud. This may seem like a small thing in the face of annihilation, until annihilation occurs. And then all the designs and grand plans will be revealed for what they are. A very philosophical uh, drugs lord, terrifying person. He's going to kill the man's wife that he's talking to, and your man is pleading for her. She's been kidnapped, he's pleading for her life. Uh, And they're going to kill her because of something that your man did, the counsellor. He's a lawyer. Something he did, it it was something very criminal that he had done. And he had crossed these powerful criminals. The extinction of all reality is a concept that no resignation can encompass. Stop pretending you're a hard man, that you're a tough woman in the front of death. We'll see how tough you are when it comes. And I'm not being nasty. You're loading an impossible burden onto yourself with this. Turn to God. Fine if you have to put on an act in front of others. You, You play your games. You do what you have to do. Okay, fine. That's fine. We all do it. Turn to God and play no games with them. There's no point and weep for yourself. Embrace the reality that your life will end, that you will lose, that you have lost those you love. And that is where you can meet him. You will meet him most easily in Gethsemane. You will meet him most easily on the Via Dolorosa. You will meet him at Golgotha. You will meet him in the tomb. You will meet him where he is at his most vulnerable and heartbroken. And that is where he can most easily meet you when your heart is broken. And the pieces are strewn on the road of your pride. So put aside all the pseudo-macho BS that we generally take to this. All the breezy, business-like attitude we take to it. Oh, you know, there you are standing in front of the firing squad and blank the blindfold. I admire a man who's a bit of style and disaster. I do. I admire it. Just so long as you're not stupid enough for that to sink into your soul. Because if you don't know that what's happening to you is a catastrophe... If you don't know that what's happening to somebody you love there in the bed is a catastrophe, then you're a moron. Now, maybe we all are at times. In fact, we are all at times. But I mean, we should try to improve. deepen your perception, let reality in. Let yourself weep. Let your heart break for your friend, for yourself, for the sadness of life, for the November of life. And realize that God has a whole a ray of second chances for you. Purgatory is not a punishment. Purgatory is part of the infinite charity of God who is hunting right to the end for the soul and does it even after death. First drafts can be a tricky business and it's well known that grandparents often get it right the second time. They didn't get it wrong the first time maybe. They just got it partly wrong. How, how do you parent? My God, I don't know how parents do it. And I'm not saying it to suck up, I just don't know how they do it. You have to make a hash of it to some extent. But generally grandparents, they play a blinder on the second run because, you know, you've, you've learned all that. So I'm looking forward to purgatory. I don't like November. If I were a better Christian, I would love November too. That time when we celebrate the conquest of death by Christ. The death has come to, we pray for the holy soul. Listen to me when I tell you, you are part of a great republic, a great republic, the democracy of the dead, as Chesterton call it. All those you love who went before you are all around you. You don't see them, but they're there. They're praying for you. They're not haunting you. They're not looking at you with evil and hatred. They're praying for you and loving you and probably desperately trying to warn you. And they want you to pray for them because they can't pray for themselves. Pray for them November is a fantastic time to pray for the dead Prayer for the holy souls Remember, and, and this may well be a very important point about Knock County Mayo About the vision in Knock, the most unusual vision Everyone calls Knock a Marian vision And Our Lady was present in the vision But Knock is a Eucharistic vision It's an apocalyptic vision The central part of the vision is the Lamb on the altar It's Christocentric Christ is at the centre of the vision in Knock. It's a vision of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb on the altar from the Apocalypse with Our Lady, Teste David cum Sibylla, as David and the Sibyl testify, Our Lady, St. Joseph and St. John testifying. Beside it, the angels hovering around it. And when did Knock happen? Just as the parish priest of Knock, the Venerable Archdeacon Bartholomew Cavanagh, who was a man of tremendous holiness, had just finished saying, off his own bat and without any stipend, A rota of 100 masses for the Holy Souls. And devotion to the Holy Souls is a tremendously Catholic thing and as much in Ireland as any in any part of the Catholic world and maybe in some ways more, but certainly as much, with tremendous devotion to the Holy Souls and is a wonderful part of our spirituality. Chesterton talked about the democracy of the dead, that in the tradition, which literally comes from the Latin words, transdicere, to speak across, the dead are continually talking to us. The dead have left us any number of things that we don't have to reinvent. All their accomplishments are available to us, the civilization they have left to us, the very life that they gave us, and they pray for us continually. Somebody, Apparently Joyce didn't say it, but Joyce is often quoted as having described the Catholic Church as "Here comes everybody." But it, it's, he should have said it, okay? As the Italians say, "Anche se non è vero è e ben trovato." Even if it's not true, it's a good story. The French term for everybody, "Tout le monde," the whole world, is a great description of the Church. It's a huge, chaotic stampede of the faithful. I often think of Flannery O'Connor in that incredible image in the short story "Revelation." That incredible image of the holy souls going up Jacob's ladder, going up the great stairway to heaven, shouting and praising and jumping and leaping like frogs. The hallelujahs echoing in the starry sky. It's an incredible image. Can I give you, I, this is a little whimsical, I admit it, but can I leave you? I started with the DA's era, which would frighten the proverbial out of any sinner. frighten a few of the just as well. Can I leave you with an image that appeals to me hugely? I think it was the American writer Thoreau who said that his ideal house would be like a Viking longhouse. You know those long houses the Vikings lived in? I think some, some Amazonian tribes live in them as well, where the, the whole tribe is in there basically, or certainly the whole extended family. And there's this fire that runs the whole length of the house and you sit at different parts of it. And all the ages are gathered round it, and different families all the way down the longhouse. I think that's a great image for the church. We're all in there together, and that's a tremendous image for the mass, which is at the center of the church, the lamb on the altar. So on the diezire, Diazila, the day of wrath, that day, that day, when that day comes, and the Liber Scriptus Proferator, and the great book, the written book is brought out in which everything is contained, we have all of them talking for us. I remember a teacher I had once impressed us greatly by talking about the little son that he had lost when he was young. And the way he put it was, and then he was a tough man, great sportsman and a man of the world. We were kind of in awe of him. And I remember we were deeply impressed by the way he talked about his little son that he had lost. And he said, I've a line in. That was the way he put it. And he said, he'll look out for me if I'm stuck. I haven't asked him for anything yet, but I know that when the time comes, I can ask him and he'll... He'll see me all right. He'll look after me. I thought it was it was an incredible statement of faith. They are all around you. They are all around yes, the Diazire comes. Yes, the judgment comes. But God is on your side. It's we're our own executioners. We're trying, we're trying to destroy ourselves. God is on your side, and the dead, the so-called dead, are all on your side. You know in the Geltaq, I've said this before, they won't talk about Dina Marav. Dead people They talk about Willer Those who are on the path of truth On the great ladder up to the sky They're praying for you all the time They're all around you Particularly in the Mass Because Christ is on the altar in the Mass The Lamb is on the altar And they are where Christ is They are, they are either with him Or journeying towards him You are part of a stampede You are part of a mighty host That is moving towards God And it's not anonymous. They know you. They love you. They're praying for you. Yes, the Dies Irae. Yes, the Dies Irae, the day of wrath, for which we should be ready. But it's also the Dies Domini, the day of the Lord. And so I wish you this November. don't laugh. I wish you not a happy Christmas or happy Easter. I wish you a happy November. I wish you a happy, depressing, cold, leafless trees November. With the crows cawing in the trees and all the rest of it. I wish you a great November. I don't wish you some little cut-price, cheapskate, uh, kitsch, pseudo-pagan, druidic Halloween. Which is a lot of superstitious nonsense that people have when they've given up God. They have to scratch it from the walls. I don't wish you that rubbish. No, I, I, I wish you the longhouse. I wish you the sense of them all around you. I wish you the sense of the mighty host you're part of going up to heaven on the day of the Lord, shouting and praising and dancing and leaping like frogs. Saint Brendan, pray for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.